Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. Merry Christmas! I'm Sarah. I'm Erica. And I'm Steve. So friends, this is Christmas Day and we are coming to you uh, in a continuation of our series that we've been doing all through Advent and talking about the saints. And uh, we started off this series uh, pretty early talking about St. Nicholas and so we're going to swing back to him because it is Christmas Day. It seems only appropriate. But we're going to be taking a different spin on it this week. So, Steve, do you want to tell us kind of where that spin's going to take us? Sure. Um, well, we, we, we talked at the beginning of the series, like you mentioned, about St. Nicholas as an actual historical figure who uh, whose rootings were in not only generosity but being a early church leader while it was still dangerous and illegal to be a Christian. And we talked a little bit there about how that has now spun out and that character, that, that historical figure, has become the character that our culture calls Santa Claus. Um, and we tried to do a little sifting through of what in the layers of mythos have uh, where the, where's, where's the historical reality and where are the things that are complete fabrications and what are things that maybe, oh, I could see where you get giving gifts from a hand, you know, one, an actual incident of giving money to, to a family. Um, but one of the things we thought it would be worth talking about a little bit is um, the way our wider culture talks about Santa Claus uh, how that affects our picture of God, because often you know, the 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 way we we tell stories uh, as a way of affecting our theology, and so often, I've, at least I've noticed, um, we have this way of sort of uh, superimposing our our understanding of of the the myth of Santa onto our picture of how God operates, in part because the the songs that our culture has taught us to sing about Santa Claus almost give Santa this. Um, partially divine, omniscient, you know, sitting in judgment, watching who's naughty and nice, it's hard not to sort of go, oh yeah, well that, that here's this almost divine figure that we almost make the switch and sort of view God through the lens of Santa Claus too. And I guess I, I, I think it'd be helpful for us to maybe unpack a little bit about where, where is that a dangerous thing or where are there places where um, there'd be dragons? So <clears throat> I, I guess let, let, me, let me kick it off for example. Um, when I think of the, the way our culture tells the story of Santa Claus, um, it sort of says two things. One, that if you are good, however we measure objectively what goodness or naughtiness or niceness is, if you are good, there are prizes in store for you, and there is punishment in, in the form of fossil fuel coal uh, if you are bad, uh, and that basically Santa is this rewards and punishment sort of a figure. Uh, and the other, I guess, parallel uh, thing we sometimes do with Santa is to treat him sort of like a holiday-related genie of that he gives you whatever it is you wish for, and it's a matter of your wishing hard enough. And and I see ways that we do that in our theology sometimes, and sort of santify God and make God into this sort of, sort of like karmic doler out of rewards and punishments, uh, and also sort of God as our cosmic vending machine. Who it's a matter of my wishing hard enough, and God is obligated to give me the thing I asked for, rather than God being able to say no. That's that pony would not be helpful for you, that kind of thing. So I guess that, that's where I, I want to open that can of worms. It, I don't know, how, how does that, that, that hit either of you? Is, am I the only one who's got this phobia of sanctifying God? <laughs> no, I, I totally agree with you, Stephen. I think we've talked about this in previous podcasts, you and I, when we've talked about prayer and how you know when God doesn't seem to answer our prayers, at least in the way we want them, mm-hmm. did we not pray it hard enough? Were we not good enough for God to answer our prayers in the way we wanted him to? Right. Um, and also just the idea of that you know, the good and bad, the Donnie and nice side of, of Santa. You know, sometimes we think that 
bad things happen to us because we've not been faithful enough to God. Right, right. And that's not the case. You right. know, it's just bad things happen. It's the effect of living in a sinful world. But yet we get this Santa Claus idea that, you know, well, naughty kids get coal, and so naughty people get bad things from right, God. Right, Or nice kids get presents, and nice people get good things from God. Right. And so, like, I guess my, my concern is that the more we sort of uh, reinforce and, and sort of teach this sort of underlying structure, this is how it works with Santa, this invisible magical figure who shows up with presents on Christmas, that we sort of, even, even grown-ups who don't have the same obsession with Santa that kids do, we have this way of internalizing that same thinking of going, well, we don't talk about Santa when we're grown-ups, but we still think that's how God operates. So even to start with that notion of um, sort of uh, uh, Santa as grantor of wishes, you know, I mean, like we actively are, not we, I hope, I hope not the three of us are on this table, but like our culture like actively encourages kids like come up with a list of whatever things you wish for write them down on paper and send them off because Santa's job is to give you the things you want um, like I mean I, I don't know how, how does that hit you as far as like where does that run up against um, faithful Christian theology well I mean so often we you know we, we have a list when we pray you know yeah. God I want this 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 and when that doesn't happen, it's like, you know, again, like with Santa, you know, if you don't get the gifts that you ask Santa for, mm-hmm. then, you know, that messes with people's minds. It messes with kids' minds. And like, well, what did I do? Why didn't I get the gift that I asked Santa for? Because right. Santa's magical and Santa can do anything right. without realizing that, oh, yeah, it's mom and dad to actually <laughs> right. buy the gifts. Maybe mom and dad don't have the money to buy you a pony. Right. Uh, or you don't have the space for a pony. Right. Um, and so we kind of tend to think the same way about God. It's, you know, well, God, I asked for this, this, and this, and because you're you're a genie and, you know, I or a vending machine, I put my coin and I press the button right. and I get this out. Right, right. You know? This reminds me of the plot of the Santa Claus with Tim Allen. Uh-huh. And how every adult can pinpoint when they stop believing in Santa uh-huh. with that one year they didn't get that present that they really wanted. Yeah. And yeah. for the stepfather, that was um, an Oscar Myers weenie whistle. Mm-hmm. And for the mom, it was a uh, dating game. Um, but it all boiled down to, I stopped believing in Santa Claus when Santa Claus didn't give me that one thing mm-hmm. that I wanted. And I think that sets us up for a bad precedent mm-hmm. of... Oh, I really wanted my great aunt to get better yeah. and to leave the hospital, yep. mm-hmm. and she died. Yeah. Yep. Therefore, that's when I stopped believing in God. And that I think really is hits the nail on the head here. That like it's not that that we're anti talking about God as being generous the way we talk about Santa being this generous mm-hmm. figure. It's that notion of the way our culture ties so quickly. If you don't get what you want, well, the thing you put your trust in must not be real or must have failed mm-hmm. you. And how we leap then to, well, when God, what, what about that time when I prayed so hard for this and this didn't happen? And I was so sure this was the right thing to happen. That becomes often, you know, a really, really faith-shaking event for people. And in, in, in a sense, like, well, no surprise, because we've set people up to think. If some if you ask for something and you don't get it, it must be because the thing you, you the entity uh, that you ask, God or Santa or a genie or the tooth fairy or whatever, isn't real. And, like, it seems to me that the scriptures uh, have been shouting from the beginning, that's not how it works. And, like, at the core of uh, good, honest, biblical faith, like, I'm thinking in particular, like, the, the whole plot, the whole gist of Job's story has to do with sometimes... Um, 
terrible things happen, and you can be praying, crying out for, please let there be an answer. Please, and Job never gets an answer to why things happen the way they did. We, reading the story, get this sort of delightful, you know, coda about God and the devil. Oh, we know how this is all going, but Job never gets that. He just gets this face-to-face with God of, this is beyond your pay grade, Job. You don't get it. And the whole gist is, can you still trust and love someone uh, even when... Uh, you don't get the thing that you're. I mean, when your relationship is not about commodity exchange, you know. Um, and in the end, that's the, that's where Job is vindicated. He's able to still love God even when he doesn't get a thing that he wants in the end. And and even though, yeah, there's new children at the end of the story. They don't replace the the original children. It's it, it, nobody even telling that story at the end of Job says, well, and it didn't really matter that this you know first round of children died. That I guess you just get replacement children. No, he grieves over that. And there's this sense of. Um, he can still trust God even when things fall apart and he doesn't get answers or resolution. And the scriptures would have us have that kind of living kind of faith, not a, well, I, got, I didn't get the thing I prayed for. God must not be real and it must not be there for me. And I think, too, maybe, uh, there, there's even this underlying, like, that it's, it's Santa's job to give me the thing I want, and it's not God's job to give me the thing I want, necessarily. That if, if the, the imagery we keep getting in the scripture is that God is... Uh, among other things, profoundly like a parent, um, then parents' job is not entirely to give kids what they want, but it's about giving them what they need. And there are a number of times, uh, sometimes difficult times with, with me as a parent at least, where I know that my kids, that the easy win is give me more candy, don't make me eat, you know, broccoli. And I'm sorry, this is a time when it's okay for me to be the bad guy. There will be no additional candy, there will be broccoli. <laughs> and we'll talk after broccoli about whether there's a snack at bedtime or whatever. But I think that's a closer picture the scriptures would have us see of that God's job is not just to give us the thing we want. Um, and that not only is God not a vending machine, but sometimes God's answer is no, um, not because God's out of stock or something, but like, no, this isn't, that my job is not to just give you the thing that you want, but that we trust that uh, ours is a God who sees a bigger picture um, and is able to give us what we need uh, even when we don't get what, why that's useful or why that's, why that's important. I think, too, like, we have this difficult time because our culture not only reinforces that idea of Santa is about giving you what you wish for and therefore God is, you know, uh, about giving you what you wish for. That's so individualistic, too. You know, yeah. that it's it's never a sense of us as a family. What are the things we together all need or want? Or, oh, you know, what should what should I write to Santa for uh, that my brother wants or something? You know, it's like, what's your personal wish list? And again, we tend to have that sort of picture with me and God. Man, what I want, God, is I want a new car and I want this and I want this without any thought about what that does to other people around me. You know, like... Um, there are times when if my kids want to have, uh, you know, can I have the last helping of macaroni and cheese? Well, wait, if your brother didn't get any yet, no. It's, and it's not because I'm being mean to you. It's because I care about this other person around the table, too. And the whole myth of Santa is sort of this, it, that nobody else has any bearing. That it's sort of, it's just sort of me and Santa. <laughs> um, me and my personal relationship with Santa doesn't bear on anybody else, um, except if I've kept enough rules to keep myself on the nice list. I guess that that becomes the other bridge in my mind, too, is that in Santa theology, to to talk that way, the only reason to be naughty or nice, the only reason to be nice as opposed to naughty, I guess, is 
it's really about self-interest. It's, yeah. I, I should be uh, nice, not for its own sake, that goodness or love is not worth, of, but it's really about keeping me on the good side. So in order to avoid punishment and get a good thing. Um, and I, I, again, I'm, I'm really concerned, whether we connect it with Santa or not, that we do the same thing theologically for a lot of people in 21st century American pop religion, in that, like, follow these rules. Here are the rules. The reason you should do these things is to keep yourself out of hell or to keep yourself out, as opposed to... Uh, Love your neighbor because God loves your neighbor. Love people around you because that's how love... That, that's, it's not about what I get out of it. And that Jesus consistently in his teaching is pulling us outside of thinking about love based on what will I get out of this. I mean, Jesus regularly said, don't just do nice things in order to get a reward. Don't just do things uh, because someone will pay you back. But that, that's not how love works for us. Um, and that, that the, the calling for the followers of Jesus is different than I only follow these rules because uh, it's what's either getting me into heaven or keeping me out of hell or getting get me some kind of divine promise or something like that. It reminds me of the story of the true Saint Nick, you know, the Bishop mm-hmm. of Myrna, and uh, when he left the gold for the, for the girls. Um, and I'm not sure how much you know, of, of this part of the story is truth, but apparently you know, this was a rich family at one point. The dad lost his money. We're not sure how, but one of those stories, at least I've heard, is that he, like, gambled it away. Mm-hmm. And so, really, does this family then deserve to have that right. when the father has wasted their money and not used it in the proper way, but yet St. Nick gives them money because he realizes, you know, if he doesn't, if someone doesn't help this family out, then these girls are in trouble because right. of the actions of their father. Right, right. And I guess one of my bigger, bigger concerns wearing my Lutheran Protestant hat is that the whole logic of Santa Claus uh, undercuts God's uh, reserved right to be graceful, yeah. and that mm-hmm. a Santa theology has no room for grace. Really, it's sort of if you're if you're naughty, you will not get prized. If you're nice, you'll get. And that sort of God basically weighs out your good deeds and your bad deeds. And at the heart of the gospel, uh, and I, I think this is solid biblical ground, but like Lutherans beat this drum a lot, just as Lutherans, is that at the heart of uh, any of our relationship with God, at, at, at root, it's not about my goodness or badness because um, my <laughs> that 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 balance sheet is always going to fall on the side of I've messed up again, I messed up again, I messed up again, both in the things I've done and the things I've left undone, mm-hmm. um, and yet that God reserves the right to be gracious to me beyond what I deserve. Um, I guess my my big picture con- concern as someone who cares about Jesus, about grace, and about Christmas, too, is that this whole Santa Claus way of thinking sort of, like, poisons the well. You know, that it, it's, it's, a, it's a way of sort of saying, uh, that's not really how things work. It's you must be good and you get prizes, and if you're bad, you get punishments. Um, and that that's not at any point in the scriptures the way God actually operates. That instead God is constantly gracious beyond our deserving, beyond our earning. And that every point when we turn out to be stinkers, God reserves the right to be better than we deserve, to give us more. And that it's never a matter of be good and then God will be kind to you. But it's always God is God is kind and gracious. How will you live as a response to that? Mm-hmm. And and that's not the way the Santa Claus songs go. You know that it's it's uh, you know he knows you know he he knows if you've been good or bad, so be good, or else you won't get presents. You know, it's mm. it's a it, it's a horse and cart thing too. I think, and that the the heart of the good news is that grace always comes first. That mm-hmm. there's this like God's gracious before I've desi- you know done or deserved a thing, and I'm called to live in a response to that. But that's different than I hope I've done enough good things in order to get on God's good side. Yeah, if Christian theology followed you know Santa Claus theology, right? Then we'd have no story of the thief on the cross. You know, we wouldn't have Paul being who he was. Right. There's many great things that he did after his conversion. Look at all the things he did beforehand. There would be so many people in scripture that have, you know, 
Oh, and all of us today still, again, that our, our bad will always outweigh our good. Right, right, right. And the thing that I think is really, really important is, like, really, I think if we take the New Testament seriously... Uh, voices like Paul's would say, even that whole notion of weighing, like, chuck that. It was never about weighing and balance sheets. And yet, the whole Santa mythology is sort of, you know, boils down to that God, that Santa or God is basically a, an accountant, you know. And, well, you're good outweighed. You're bad, therefore, you're on the plus side this year. Here you get this bonus. Here you get these these presents. And, oh, though this year you're bad. I'm sorry, you fall into the coal pile. Um, and that that's... That not not only does Paul say um, that God deserves to be gracious, uh, reserves right to be gracious, even when our bad deeds outweigh our good. That God doesn't keep score like that anymore. That the sort of wiping away of the record is God doesn't that God doesn't hold those records against us anymore, um, and that God treats us differently than um, a, a bean counter or an accountant would. I, like I think that's a really big deal, and maybe we're not aware uh, in our wider culture of how like subtly and almost insidiously that way of thinking infects all of our theology I and mean, I think it's it's part of the, the theology you see on television uh, when preachers talk about you know give to my ministry and you'll get a boat or give to my ministry and watch how your uh, you know your uh, paycheck increases or the Facebook memes of share this meme and then blessing will come to you I mean like and it kills me that not not just sort of like random strangers but people who should know better you know but like people in, in who we know who like are good, faithful, like, who theoretically are, like, getting it, who should be, you know, reading in their Bibles and going, oh, it's it, it's not magic. It's not because I forwarded it on this Facebook meme that God, you know, was nice to me. It turns out God is gracious because God is gracious. Um... But, like, it, it, like, infects us everywhere. It's, it's Facebook theology. It's, it's, uh... Prosperity theology on on television and in books, it's all around us. And maybe even deep down, there's still some part of us that really thinks that God does sort of just like keep score and weigh out, does our good outweigh our bad, rather than saying it all hangs on God's grace at the cross. That if it really is all about what God's done for me in Jesus, the scorekeeping is done. There's this great line of uh, Robert Farrar Capons who says, um, the salt mines are closed, your services are no longer required. That God, like, God is done with any of that scorekeeping. God doesn't just say, think how great it would be if God didn't keep score anymore. It's God is done keeping score. Um, and that's not just uh, on the getting out of hell front, but it's also on the, the, the positive, the gifts of grace, the, the gifts of life beyond death as well. And I think a reason that so much of this kind of Santa Claus theology um, appeals to us is because then we can control it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we have control because we're the ones. If we do bad, then well, then we deserve the punishment. But if we do good, then we, and it it has you know you throw grace out the window and realizing that good things do happen to bad people, right? And bad things do happen to good people sometimes. And I think that's just it. That really at the heart of why the whole notion of Santa Claus is uh, intriguing to us and making that our sort of picture of God is that it allows us that there's a difference between miracle and magic, and that mm-hmm. magic is all about controls. If only I can learn the right spell or do the right yep. deed or the right incantation or you know, do the right... Then it was really about how do I tap into a bigger power but I still have control mm-hmm. over it. And that's, again, sort of the root of that vending machine thing of, you know, if I press B5 because I want to have Reese cups and it gives me carrot sticks, <laughs> you're like, no, I have control. I get to pick what I want to have. Um, and God reserves the right to say, no, either you, you don't have the money to buy Reese cups but I'm still giving you something good anyway... Or God reserves the right to say, no, you were picking something that was terrible, but I'm giving you something that's good. The power isn't in my hands anymore. And maybe that's a difficult thing for us to admit, too, that deep down, 
to consider grace really at the heart of the Christian good news is also about accepting surrender is at the heart of the good news or mm-hmm. surrender of control. Um, and that's not a comfortable thing, especially for 21st century Americans here, because we like being in control of our circumstances. We like being in control of our lives and at least having the illusion that my effort, my power, my wealth, my money, my uh, right words, my whatever, control my fate. So another problem I find with Santa Claus theology is the lack of equality. Oh, okay. Because um, I remember when I was a child, Santa Claus was the one that gave me the big gifts. Yeah. You know, whether it was when I was in the fourth grade and Santa gave me a keyboard and piano lessons, or, you know, when I was older in high school and I got a used computer, you know, that Santa was the one who gave me the big gifts. Mm-hmm. And... That wasn't always the case with my classmates. You know, you'd go back to school in January and you would be like, oh yeah, Santa got me a keyboard and piano lessons. And, you know, your classmate would go, Santa just gave me clothes. Yeah. Like, and so there's a lack of equality about what Santa gives to whom. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of chips away at the foundation of the Santa myth. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if... You know, God doesn't give us gifts depending on where we are and where our family's social economic status right. is. It's everybody gets love, grace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's one of the things that's interesting to me. That's like there in the New Testament that I I've, will confess I've often overlooked is how deeply the New Testament writers, certainly the, the Hebrew scriptures as well, but even the New Testament writers have this sense of, when you have abundance, its purpose is for wider sharing, not mm. like it's your soul thing to possess. So like there's this line in one of the later epistles, one of the Timothy lessons, when it, when it talks about um, uh, thieves should give up stealing. What a good policy. Thieves should give up stealing. And then the rest of the line is the thing that seems so radical and world-turning, where the, the author goes, thieves should give up stealing, but instead should find gainful employment so that they will have resources to share with other people. It's this like whoa, the reason I have a job, the reason I have income is so that then I can be part of caring for somebody else, not just don't be a rule breaker, that's bad for our reputation as Christians, but the reason to have wealth, the reason to have source of income, or if you have wealth, the point is that it can be shared all the way around because my life isn't just my own, even my little family or my little tribe or my little group that we're called to be people who share because if I recognize what I have has come from God, the intention is that it be shared broadly and all the way around. Um... That that's a pretty radical notion, and the New Testament has that. We've just found ways of uh, ignoring it, or silencing it, or stifling it, or saying no, no, no. But that's not really how it is. It's really if you prayed hard enough for it, that's God. God gave it to you, and if somebody else didn't get their thing, they asked for it because they didn't pray hard enough, or they were lazy, or they were whatever. And the New Testament won't have that kind of thinking. Yeah, there is there is this surprising breadth of the way God provides for everybody mm. that both Old and New Testament witness to. Like, I even think, like, down to, like, this fundamental story of um, God's provision in the, in the manna story there in the, in the wilderness, that God makes a point in the way that story unfolds of some households get more than others, but because it's the household that have more kids, yep, there's enough for you, everybody in your house gets to eat. You got ten kids, yep, you can have enough for ten kids to eat. You got three kids, there's enough for your family to eat. And it was simply a matter of God cares that everybody gets to eat, that there's this provision for everybody, and there's enough in that regard. And nobody has to be envious of, well, you're getting more than me. Well, hold your horses. They got ten kids to feed. Of course, it's, that's okay, because this is all coming from the hand of God who's providing. And at no point does the Bible stop and say, that's not how God's order of things 
works anymore. That no point does God go, well, it used to be a gift, but now it's all about your earning and your accomplishment. It's always been about a God who provides generously. And that if I have superabundance, my calling is to share beyond mine, uh, beyond my own doors or beyond my own comfort level um, so that other people can have enough as well. That's always been the way God operates. Uh, we just have this way of treating it like, no, well, sorry, however God, Santa operates in your house is different is how God does for you, but mm-hmm. God give, Santa gives bikes out in this house, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I, we don't mean to be Grinches here on this day, but I, I guess I do think that like this is a point where um, it's worth it for people who are, are who, who care about actually you know Christ being in this Christmas mm-hmm. season that we actually be like attentive to the character of the God we actually meet in Christ, and that the heart of the story of, of Christmas is a God who enters into humanity not on the basis of what we deserve and not because we got what we were asking for either. I mean, like that's the, the thing that surprises me too is that. Uh, when the Messiah, when Christ himself shows up, it sort of breaks apart Santa Claus theology because God's entrance into the world is an act of grace we didn't deserve. And the Jesus who we get, the Savior we get, isn't the one that anybody asks for. You know, like everybody's wish list was, we want a, a general who will, you know, raise up an army and kill the Romans. We want a king who will be glorious and make us great and all that kind of thing. And instead they get a baby who's wrapped up in bands of cloth and laid in a food trough. Nobody's looking for that. Nobody, nobody in the first century is like, I know, we'll know the Messiah because he'll be a poor homeless baby who then has to flee to Egypt. That's how we'll know God is saving the world. Um, and if, if that's what the, the heart of Christmas is about, this God who gives what we don't beyond what we deserve and not what we expect, um, then the whole of our faith is about a God who reserves the right to give us beyond what we deserve and also who reserves the right to say, I know you asked for this, but this is what you actually need. And to discover what God gives is so much bigger and, and uh, better and, and big picture beyond what we had in mind. Sometimes the way it's bigger is that it's good for other people and not just me, too. Mm-hmm. Well, um, other thoughts uh, before we wrap our conversation for today? I'm good. So uh, hopefully your turkey is cooking or your ham is getting ready to go or you're in the midst of opening presents or whatever. I assume that everybody's listening to our podcast while they're opening presents <laughs> on, in the Christmas background, on Christmas Day. On Christmas Day. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, but wherever you're listening, we, we hope the conversation has been valuable and at least provokes a little bit of thought about... Um, where where God is different from this figure who wears the red suit and hat, and maybe what it might look like all the rest of our lives when it isn't the Christmas season to unsantify God. Thanks for listening. Merry Christmas. Bye.